The second coming of Jesus Christ is said by one Bible teacher to be mentioned 318 times in the 250 chapters of the New Testament. I haven't confirmed that number. I'd like to someday. Maybe you'll beat me to it. When Jesus ascended into heaven, in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, two men stood by the disciples and said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Amen. The apostle likewise declares that Christ will come again in person as compared with his suffering on the cross. Hebrews 9.28 So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Amen. At each of our communion services, we usually hear the statement, For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. We're reminded of that. I purpose to select a few of the many scriptures that speak about the second coming and relate them to two to three subjects. First, the fact that the Lord will recompense to those who have suffered as a Christian in this lifetime. He will recompense evil upon their enemies. Secondly, I'd like to look at the second coming of Christ as it relates to the resurrection and transformation of the saints at his second coming. And thirdly, I'd like to take a look at the rewards and the revelation that's going to take place at the judgment seat of Christ. A day of recompense. The second coming is a day of recompense. And James brings this out in James chapter 5. I invite you to look with me there for a few verses. Beginning with verse 4 in James 5. Where these early believers were being defrauded by their employers. Perhaps you couldn't call a slave owner or employer, but just to translate that into our circumstances, consider yourself if you're being abused in your workplace. Right. James 5.4 Behold, the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Ye have lived in pleasure on earth and been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in the day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient." Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Amen. There will be a day of reckoning for those who have suffered faithfully for the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns. We can mark that. I think that's probably been a key point in the lives of early martyrs. They knew that though they were suffering, 
and under persecution, there would be a day when all would be made square and right. That's right. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Turn with me, please, also to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Here we meet the suffering of these Thessalonian believers. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. So that we ourselves glory in you, in the mercy, in the churches of God, for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure. Paul is mindful to commiserate with these people. He had preached to them. There had been a great demonstration of their election by their faith. They're turning from idols and they're looking for the Lord Jesus Christ to come. But they've been undergoing in this verse, persecutions and tribulations. Drop down to verse 7 with me. And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The comfort that Paul's offering to the Thessalonians, the coming of the Lord. Rest in that, in, that, in that light and trust him. As we enter the second chapter of 2 Thessalonians, we discover that these same believers are also being troubled from another source, not just persecution, but from false doctrine. Right. Notice in verse 1, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, Either by, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means. And so he goes on to remind them, When I was with you, I told you that certain things would take place. There is a certain order in God's dealings. And the man of sin must be revealed first before the Lord comes. There's even those today who... Get mixed up on this order. The seminaries that I attended were mixed up. I, I'm not sure how, he, how it can be that this passage can be read and the reverse order is made, but it's done. We're so thankful for the Lord's clear, clarity here. Amen. A recompense on those who are abusing God's people when the Lord Jesus Christ comes. Secondly, I'd like to just have us think for a few minutes about the second coming of Christ and the resurrection of those who have passed and the transformation of those who are living and alive. John 14. We're pretty familiar with this. John 14, 1 through 3. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me, are the words of the Lord Jesus. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Amen. I will come again. Amen. Clear language here. Death is not mentioned in this passage. 
But I look at this and realize it doesn't matter whether death is mentioned or not. The Lord Jesus said, I will come again and receive you unto myself. First Thessalonians chapter one, chapter four contains perhaps the most precious passage with regard to the second coming of Christ and the comfort that's offered by his coming concerning those who have passed from us. First Thessalonians 4.13 I would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Amen. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Personal, visible, and bodily. Don't miss that. Don't let anyone talk you out of it, regardless of what uh, heresies might float around today or at any other time. The Lord himself is not a spirit. This is the glorified Christ. The Lord himself. A shout. Secret, secret coming? Well, that sort of destroys it with one, with one word. The shout. The voice of the archangel. Add that to the shout. Add the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ rise first. We which are alive and are caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Right. Amen. Amen. Confident. The Apostle Paul would enlarge on the transformation of the believers in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning with verse 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Amen. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In his coming, those things will take place. Believers who have been buried will have a resurrection body. Those who are living, and there will be living saints, it could be in our day, it could be today, will be changed. 
all glorious at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And thirdly, think with me for a few minutes about the revelation and judgment based on rewards that's going to take place when the Lord comes. <clears throat> the Apostle Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 4, 4 and verse 5, he would speak about this coming of the Lord Jesus Christ with these words. For I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. And then shall every man have praise of God. Hidden things brought to light. It will be a day of revelation. Revelation about ourselves. How did we walk? How have we lived? What has been written in the books of our works? Second <clears throat> Corinthians chapter 5 contains perhaps the clearest uh, statement about the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences." Knowing the terror of the Lord, I'd rather not think about the terror of the Lord, but it's part of meeting him at his coming. Because all the secret things of our lives, all the aspects which no one else knows except the Lord and ourselves, will be revealed. It will be a time of blessing if we have abided in, in him and walked with him. It could be a time of great embarrassment. The Apostle John speaks about that in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Two possibilities. Great confidence, great shame. May we have the confidence. And may we have the blessing of having walked with him. Stepping into the next chapter, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Amen. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. And so there's a responsibility that falls upon us as we look at the second coming of Christ, are we walking with him? Are we abiding? Are we making those efforts described in verse 3? Every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Remember the, the parable of the man who called his servants and deli delivered to them some talents, to one five, one two, one a single talent, based on that several ability. Think with me just for a minute 
Let the talents be our time. Let it represent the hours and minutes and seconds that we live. How do we invest that time? Right. Do we give it in help to other people? Do we think in terms of serving? What's recorded in mine and in your book as to our service to the Lord? The Lord Jesus would say in the last chapter of the Bible, in some of his closing words, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. Have we used those opportunities to serve the Lord? Have we denied ungodliness and worldly lusts? Have we kept ourselves unspotted from the world? Have we set aside time for prayer for ourselves and for our congregation? Have we taken time in the Bible to find strength and victory, to live pleasing to the Lord day by day? Right. Do songs of thanksgiving and praise and worship come from our lips? Or have we allowed various things to rob us of our time and service? Television? Video games? Facebook, hobbies. Let's ask the Lord, in the words of the psalmist, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. The psalmist would also record in Psalm 32 and verse 8, the words of the Lord to us. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. May that be our experience in looking forward to the coming of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Jonathan, for introducing my topic so well today. I'm, the topic I'll be speaking on today is graciousness in our speech. My purpose for being here is to remind us all of what both graciousness and odiousness are, to glorify our Lord as being the perfect example of graciousness, and to present a few ways we can improve in this area. Now, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, graciousness means the quality of being pleasing and attractive, possessing charming and winning grace, especially in manner, of character likely to find favor, of actions winning favor or goodwill, being courteous and polite with especially condescending courtesy, being merciful and compassionate, possessing grace or moral excellence, endowed with grace or charm of appearance, in a limited sense being graceful and elegant, characterized by kindness and courtesy, especially being condescendingly kind, indulgent, and beneficent to inferiors. Now, on the flip side, odiousness means a quality and manner deserving of hatred, hateful, causing or exciting hatred or repugnance, disagreeable, offensive, repulsive, exciting odium. Now, I certainly hope that definition doesn't describe any of us in here. I'm sure it doesn't. The Let's look at a few examples of people that have attained the, level, the 
attribute of being gracious. In fact, let's look at the perfect example, our Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. Luke 2.52 says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, and in favor with God and man. Psalm 45.2, Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Luke 4.22, And all bear him witness, and wondered at the gracious words which proceedeth out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? Mr. Rollin did an excellent job of presenting what a perfect example of everything that our Lord Jesus Christ was. He is our role model. We should certainly strive to make him our goal in life. And knowing, knowing that he was a gracious person and we need to mimic him, so to speak, it is certainly important to be gracious in everything that, every aspect of our life. A gracious person is a charitable, charitable person. And since charity is a commandment, being gracious is also a commandment. A gracious woman retains honor, i.e., she is always adored, appreciated, respected, and valued. A good name and loving favor from others, i.e., graciousness, is better than riches. Proverbs 22.11, as we've heard earlier, a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches, and loving favor, favor, rather than silver and gold. Now, now that we know how important it is to be gracious, it's a commandment, how can we implement that into our lives? Exalt listening over speaking if you talk a lot. This doesn't apply to you introverted people out there. So, Proverbs 17.27, He that hath knowledge spareth his words, and a man of understanding is of an excellent spirit. Speak always with grace, season with salt, as is mentioned in Colossians 4.6. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister unto minister grace unto the hearers. Ecclesiastes 10.12, The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious, but the lips of a fool will swallow up himself. A pure heart provides gracious speech. So keep thy heart with all diligence. Again, Proverbs 22.11, A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches, and loving favor rather than silver and gold. Don't allow even a little folly, which impulsive spirits will try to justify. Ecclesiastes 10.1, Dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor. So doth a little folly him that hath a reputation for wisdom and honor. Exalt mercy over judgment. Manliness or holy zeal is not always condemning. And as I mentioned earlier about charity, learn the 15 aspects of charity and practice them at all times. To the odious person, compassion and affection is flattery and effeminate, but they certainly err. Another way we can implement this, never, and that does mean never, be interested in presenting your own opinion. Philippians 2, 3 through 4 says, Let nothing be done through, through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than himself. Right. Meekness is a great virtue we must seek. That means the lack of interest or effort in self-promotion. Graciousness does not allow self-promotion in any way. If you are given to moodiness, you need to rule your spirit. Again, graciousness does not allow moodiness. Admire and esteem gentleness rather than despise it as effeminate and weak. 
think about King David for a moment. This guy, I mean, we all know how he got Michael to be his wife. I would not describe that person as being effeminate by any means. But then again, he could soothe King David's, I mean, King Saul's spirit by playing the harp. He was right. gentle in his, in the way that he acted. Galatians five twenty two through twenty three says, "But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law." Another one of the more important ways that we can implement graciousness and to practice it is at home with your immediate family. If you can do it there, you certainly will have no problem being gracious outside of your home. One final thing I'll leave you with is simply a list of bullet points of qualities of a gracious person. They are never offensive or haughty, always discreet and modest, selfless and serving, forgiving and patient, cheerful and agreeable, gentle and kind, courteous and polite, merciful and compassionate, flexible and accommodating, and, are, and is delightful, delightfully charming in every way. They are usually described as a lovely person. They would never behave themselves in a disagreeable way. They have many friends, though they do not pursue them or flaunt them. They are always kind, and when around them, you feel accepted, safe, and loved in their presence, instead of the discomfort, fear, tension, and work of talking to some. They put you at ease completely and instantly. Those are my comments for the day. I... Appreciate your kind attention. Um. A long time ago, there was a boy. Not just any boy. This was an extraordinary boy. He possessed an insatiable quench for excellence. When other kids would go out and play, he'd study. That's right. All through high school, he wouldn't play any sports unless he could win. Unless he was number one. Because to him, second place was first place loser. In college, he studied horticulture and agricultural cultivation. In fact, when he graduated college at the top of his class, because nothing else was satisfactory, he invested all that he had in agriculture. He set personal goals for himself and would, would sacrifice his personal happiness until he achieved those goals. Well, all his hard work paid off. He made lots of money. He was extremely successful his lands, his fields, his agriculture, his cultivation processes flourished. It was incredible. Millions and millions of dollars piled on, piled on, but it was never enough for him. He kept running. He was never happy. When he got his first billion, oh, what about billion number two? He always pushed for more. One night, he suffered a massive coronary heart attack. The arteries leading to his heart closed off with plaque built up by cholesterol. Well, that's impossible, the doctor said. He exercised. He ate healthy. He even gave to the poor. He must have been doing something right. He had billions of dollars, right? Wrong. Let's see what Jesus had to say about this man. In, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus goes to say, just, I'll go ahead and read it. Luke twelve sixteen. The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do? Because I have no room to bestow these fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. 
Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall these things be which thou hast provided? So was he that layeth up treasure for himself, and is not rich toward God. The point of my story? Contentment. Contentment. Are you content? What is contentment? Contentment is being satisfied with where you're at in life. Being happy with the things you have. Now, does that mean my car out front? One of my lights isn't working. I need to fix it. I'm kind of not content with it. But am I sacrificing my own personal happiness to, to fix that light? No. Am I making that light my God? No. So there are things that you can improve and still be content. Contentment, or discontent, I should say, is, is when you make something your God, your goal. You're always pressing toward it, and you will not be happy until you get it. That's discontent. The rich man showed discontent. Let's look at some other Bible verses that deal with discontent and contentment. Psalm 37.16 says, A little that a righteous man hath is better than the riches of many wicked. Well, how can that be? Having more money is always better, right? Wrong. Someone that has little and is content can be more happy than someone with millions of dollars. It all has to do with your outlook on life. Proverbs 15.15, All the days of the afflicted are evil, but he that is of a merry heart hath a continual feast. Proverbs 16.8, Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues without it. Isn't that amazing? The, the world today shows people that are rich and famous, superstars, your, you know, basketball players, movie stars, Bill Gates, the lifestyles of the rich and famous. They're always happy, right? Whenever you see them, aren't they always smiling on TV? You always see smiles. No one's ever frowning. They're all beautiful. They all have teeth jobs. I mean, they look great. Well, that's, that's not true. If, if you read a little bit about them, they're always dying of drug overdoses. They're never happy. Divorces. You know, they're never happy with their wife. They're always going on to someone else. Well, why is that? They have everything. Or do they? Let's look at a couple more verses. Better is a handful with quietness than both the hands full with travail and vexation of spirit. Right. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver. What? Come again? He that loveth silver will not be satisfied with silver? Nor he that loveth abundance with the increase. This also is vanity. If you set anything on this earth as your goal, your God, you have to attain it to be happy. Once you get it, it's not going to satisfy. You're not going to be happy. Like my exam that I just passed. I worked hard for that exam. You know, when I passed it, it was great. But tell you the truth, it doesn't satisfy. I'm done studying for it. But that doesn't give me happiness inside. Right. I'm still as empty as if I was still studying for it. That can't be my end all. There has to be something else. When, when the soldiers came to John the Baptist, they asked him, John, what do we have to do? So John told them, and the soldiers likewise demanded of him, saying, What shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. Be content with what you got. Right. Galatians 5.26 says, 
Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. Well, why would you envy one another? Because you're not content with what you have. Philippians 4.11 Not that I speak in respect of want, this is Paul, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Paul had it rough. Of any of us, Paul had it worse. He was shipwrecked twice, beaten tons of times. You know, he was, might have been blind. He was ugly. He didn't talk very well. He was poor. I mean, some of the churches that he worked so hard, he was always having to rebuke. Paul had it rough. But look at what he says. He had learned to be content, even with all that. Right. How? I think he, he sums it up really well in 1 Timothy 6.6. 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. It's not just, you not only have to be content with what you have. But, and how do you do that? It's by, by putting the Lord first. You have to see Him. He has to be what you're searching for, what you're looking for, your end all in life. Then it won't matter what you have. Then you'll see that everything on this plane is worthless. And even if, and if you do get it, you're still not going to be happy. It's not going to satisfy. Paul also says in Hebrews 13.5, Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. That is why we should be content. Because Jesus Christ gave his life for us, and he promised us, like Lewis was pointing out with the promises in Scripture, that he will never leave us, nor forsake us. That is what we can take contentment in. Now, how does that apply to us? What today are you searching for in this world? Why are you not happy? What are, what are you seeking after? What are you running the rat race of life for? Is it, a, is it a nicer house? Is it a car? How about physical exercise? You want to look better? A better job? Salary? You want more money? Toys? You want to live in Beverly Hills? It's not going to make you happy. Why don't you be content with what you have? Look at what we have. Right. If nothing else, we have God's word and his promises to us and a hope of a resurrection. But on top of all that, look what we have. Look, we're sitting in America, the greatest country in the world right now. We have so much money that we can go out and buy whatever food we want for what? Ten minutes worth of work? We have cars. We have friends. Look at all the friends and family that we have here. Some people are alone by themselves. Some people don't have parents. Some people are all alone. We have so much. Why are you not content today? I'd encourage everybody to search themselves and see what you're searching after. Is it something in this world? Is it God? Is it the Bible? Be content with what you have. Because we really do have a lot. You know, after, after a hard day's work, after a frustrating day's work, I always love it to where I can go home, I can go to sleep, and I know that tomorrow is a new day. Thus far... We have all had those experiences. We have all had those bad days, and we have woken up the next day from them refreshed. Some days we think that we really can't go on much farther. I like to think of Sundays as a new start for the week. Maybe we've messed up the week before. Maybe we didn't do things we could, we could have done better. 
And so Sunday's the day to start the day, the week anew. Maybe some pay periods we spend our paycheck maybe a little less frugally than we decide that, you know, maybe we need to cut back on some spending. Well, thus far, we've always had that next pay period to, to set guidelines for ourselves and to set rules on ourselves. You might think that the beginning of a new month is something like, okay, last month I wasn't, I didn't encourage my brethren well enough. I didn't get up in church and speak as much as I should have and be thankful. Well, this new month we can do better. I, I don't know if you guys think of that. I think of days and in weeks and in months and kind of do better than the one beforehand. Right. Think about today. Not only is this a new day, not only is this the start of a new week, not only is this the start of a new month, but brethren, we have the start of a new year in front of us. Take a second and think, how, how have we lived our lives in this past year? What have we done? What have we messed up? What have we done right? How can we improve? That hit me pretty hard just, just this past week, thinking about how we can actually become better than we were the year beforehand. And this fresh start, this brand new start that we have, we can forget the things that are behind. Philippians 3 states this perfectly, I think, is a good thought to start off a new year. Verse 13 says, Brethren, I count myself not to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded, and if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. So I was thinking to myself, how can, how can I progress this next year to be better than I had been? I was looking through my Bible, and, and after I volunteered for this, I, I, I was thinking about what I could talk on. And in the back of my Bible, I found a small outline I had written probably about a month, uh, a year or so ago. I can't even remember now. But it just said, how to be like David. And I thought, what better man in the Bible to try to emulate, besides the Lord Jesus Christ, to learn from and to see if we can't uh, copy his mannerisms and how he worshiped the Lord. So today I just want to take a couple, a couple of his attributes, a couple of things that David would do that maybe we can apply to our own lives to this fresh start in this year. Now one thing David understood and one thing that we need to understand beforehand is that God looks on the heart. Right. It doesn't matter how good you look. Ananias and Sapphira looked pretty good. They were given a bunch of money, weren't they? But their heart was in the wrong spot, and, the, and God judged them right there on the spot. Now, Eli looked pretty good. He even said the right things. He was a priest. But look at how dysfunctional he was. What he said didn't really help him out either. First Samuel sixteen seven says, But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance, nor on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Now this is key. We need to understand this first. If our heart is not in the right place, if we don't desire and want to be, and want to be the children of God and to perfect ourselves for Him in our hearts first, what we say and do after that doesn't really matter. And David understood this. And this is key. Psalm 139, 23 through 24 said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Right. So first of all, I would say, get your priorities straight. 
get your heart right with the Lord. Another thing that uh, David was known for, and we know this, we see this throughout, is his zeal for worshiping the Lord. He loved to worship the Lord. He even made himself look like a fool. Oh, you could say a fool in front of his wife or in front of the nation when he danced before the Lord with all his might. And 2 Samuel uh, 6, 14 says, And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was girded with a linen ephod. Now, he lost a wife because of this. Well, that was a blessing because she wasn't really a virtuous wife. But he made himself look a fool in front of the nation for the Lord's sake. Are we willing to do the same? Now, he loved to sing. He loved to sing as well. You know how many psalms mention the word singing, and I will sing, and I will praise? I have a couple. Just Psalm seven seventeen says, I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Psalm 9-2, I will be glad and rejoice in thee. I will sing praise to thy name, O thou Most High. Psalm 9-11, sing praises to the Lord which dwelleth in Zion. Declare among the people his doings. 13-6, I will sing unto the Lord because he hath dealt bountifully with me. 18-49, therefore will I give thanks unto thee, O Lord, among the heathen, and sing praises to thy name. 21-13, be thou exalted, Lord, in thine own strength. So will we sing and praise thy power. Think about the the unique privilege of being Christians. Is there any other religion that sings to their God? That sings, not chants, sings meaningful words they need to think about and praise to their God. We're the only one. Think of how much of a privilege that is. But if we take that for granted... If we don't do it as much as we as much as we can, as often as we can, if we don't love it in the services today or even in our homes, right. if we don't love it, then how are we showing a difference from us? That a difference in the between the non-believers or the people that worship a different God and ourselves. Right. Now David understood this and he loved to sing. He made new songs. He made new instruments. He sang on the harp. That's something that we need to apply to our own lives as well. We want to be like him. He was a man after God's own heart, so why not try to be, why not try to be like him a little bit and love to sing? Another aspect of David that I, I kind of like to think about this one as well is he loved to pray. Psalm 5.3 says, My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord, in the morning will I direct my prayer unto thee and will look up. 69.13, But as for me, my prayer is unto thee, O Lord, and in an acceptable time. O God, in the multitude of thy mercy, hear me, and in the truth of thy salvation. Psalm 141.2, Let my prayer be set before thee as incense, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Now, we all know the times when David actually prayed to the Lord to deliver him, or to save him out of his troubles, or to strengthen him, or to forgive him, or to lift him up. But what I want to bring out is the fact that David communed with the Lord. He didn't, he didn't always ask him for things, although that is a part of prayer. Right. He didn't always ask for salvation, although that is something that we do need to pray for. He just communed with him. Right. He just prayed to the Lord to talk to him. Think about if you had a best friend or if you had a really good friend and all you ever did was give to them and all they ever did was ask you for things. All they ever did, hey, can you pick me up? Hey, can you get me this? Can you buy me this? Can you do this? Can you do this? Yeah, you don't mind it because they're your friend. But if they don't ever sit down and talk to you, if they don't sit down and just have a conversation with you, how does that make you feel 
as a friend. How many times do we do that to the Lord where all we do is ask? All we do is, all we do is ask for petitions when we don't really sit down and actually try to commune with him and, ask, and listen to him through the word of the Lord, actually try to soak up what he's trying to tell us. David loved mercy. He always forgave, and he forgave freely. Think about when Absalom died in 2 Samuel 18.33. And the king was much moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he wept, thus he said, O my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would to God I had died for thee. O Absalom, my son, my son, exclamation point. Now think back, what did Absalom try to do to him? He tried to usurp the kingdom from him. He tried to, he was chasing him, and David was actually chased for a while. He was betrayed. He was back, he was stabbed in the back. Yet he forgave freely. And, th- and, look, at, and look at how he loved his son regardless of that. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 3. And this, this is another example of, of David and his love for mercy, but yet his balance of judgment as well. 2 Samuel chapter 3, verses 28-33. And afterward, when David heard it, he said, I and my kingdom are guiltless before the Lord, forever from the blood of Abner the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's house. And let there not fail from the house of Joab one that hath an issue, or that is a leper, or that leaneth on a staff, or that falleth on the sword, or that lacketh bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, slew Abner because he had slain their brother Asahel at Gibeon in the battle. And David said to Joab and to all the people that were with him, Rend your clothes and gird you with sackcloth and mourn before Abner. And the king David himself followed the buyer. And they buried Abner in Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. And the king lamented over Abner and said, Died Abner as a fool dieth? Now think it, Abner was on the other side. Abner was going against David to begin with, but yet when he decided to make a treaty, when he decided to help David out, he was forgiving, and he accepted him on his side. Look at how he forgives Abner for a personal offense against him, yet he knows how to hold, he knows how to hold judgment on those that have actually done wrong against the Lord, or have, have disobeyed his commandments. He said, he said all those things about Joab's house that that they should not lack one that has an issue or that leaneth on the staff and all that. That wasn't him holding a grudge against Joab. That's him giving proper judgment to those who deserve it. And look at that balance that he had. He understood that. Mercy and judgment were balanced in David. And this is one of the key marks of the man after God's own heart. How, how much do we love mercy? Right. When we're giving a choice to judge or to be merciful... Where do we fall on that line? Where do we give the benefit of the doubt? Lastly, David, we see from his life that he practiced, he had four spiritual exercises. And I've heard some in this room like to reference to this as compass without the vowels in it. Uh, Confession, meditation, prayer, and self-examination. Now, David was an expert at confession. Every little thing. Every detail, he didn't hold back because he knew that the Lord knew 
He knew that the Lord, there wasn't anything hidden from him. So why should he hide and why should he try to save some of his worst sins and not really mention them and, and hope that the Lord will just kind of overlook those? No, he, he didn't leave anything out. Psalm 32, 5 says, I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my, trans- my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Stop and think about it. Like going back to what Lewis was saying earlier, he knew about the promises of God. He knew that if he confessed his sins, the Lord was faithful and just to forgive him his sins and to cleanse him from all unrighteousness. He understood that and he knew that, so he didn't hold back when he was confessing. Right. He, knew to, he knew to confess every detail. And that's how we need to be as well. We need to apply that to our lives and not leave anything hidden. One, because we might think it's too bad. We, can't, we don't really want to mention it because we're embarrassed. We don't think it's that big of a deal. Whatever the answer is, confess everything to the Lord. Second, meditation. Actually take time out of your day to meditate and to think about the Lord and about His Word. Take time. If you look at Psalm 1-2, it's talking about the man that's blessed, and it says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Psalm 63-6, When I remember thee upon my bed, and meditate on thee in the night watches. 77.12, I will meditate also of all thy works, and talk of all thy doings. I will meditate in thy precepts, and have respect unto thy ways. 119.23, Princes also did sit and speak against me, but thy servant did meditate in thy statutes. We need to take time out of our busy schedules. We need to actually set aside a block of time every day and meditate on the Lord. Not just read to check off a box. Not just glance at it, or even we can read it and understand the story and then, and then go our way and forget about it. We need to meditate. We need to take time. What, is the, what does the pastor say? How, how, how often does he mention how long it takes him to write a proverb? And he says a, tithe, a 1% of your day is about, what, 14 minutes or so? That's 1% of your day that you could give to meditating on the Lord. Why not give 10%? Why not try to give 10%? We're all busy. He understands that. Why not at least try? Prayer. Like mentioned before, like David, he loved to pray, not only to confess, not only to ask, but also just to communicate with the Lord. And I heard it said to me once, um, is prayer your spare tire or is it your steering wheel? Do you only pray when you need things? Do you only pray... When your life's going the wrong way. What about in the good times? What about when your life is going well? Do you pray? Something to think about. Something I need to think about. Last but definitely, definitely not least, self-examination. Now this takes time. Almost like meditation and prayer, you need to take time and reevaluate your life. You need to say, what am I doing that I can change? What can I do better? What did, I, what did I fail yesterday on? Like I said, this is a new start this year, this day, this week, this month. We need to reevaluate our lives and think, what can we change to be better for the Lord's kingdom? 1 Corinthians 11.28 says, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. So hopefully, at least we're doing this at least once a month in this church, if you guys think about it. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. 
Know ye not your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? We need to we need to examine ourselves, and we need to purge all those sins that we have inside of us that we we know that is a weight that's keeping us down in this race that we have. Now, brothers and sisters, uh, 2012 has officially begun. How are we going to live? How are we going to look back on this day and think, do I use it for the Lord or did I use it for myself? Amen. Thank you, brethren. Thank you, Brother Rollin, for reminding us about the importance of Christ's return and what it should mean to us in our lives. How we, how we should gaze, gaze upon it, gave, evaluate our lives in its sure coming, how it should spur us on to live better for him, the fact that we know he's coming for us. Brother Daniel, thank you for that reminder of graciousness, that great trait, that wonderful trait that is so difficult for all of us to have, even those who are blessed with personalities that have that naturally, to be truly godly gracious. What a difficult thing it is. That's why it's so good to be reminded about it. Contentment. Thank you, Brother Mark, for reminding us on that as well. We can have the whole world, and it means nothing. And there's ample stories we can, we can find in Scripture and outside of men just like that who are never content. And we, of all people, should be content. It's a commandment for us. Thank you for that good reminder. And what you can't think of a better man to be like is, is our pastor's report shown us many times. Outside of maybe Jesus Christ, you hear more about David in Scripture than you do any other character. Why? The Lord chose him to be an example for us. You see how high he could be in, in the thrall of love with the Lord through his psalms and in his life. You also see how down in the depths you can be in folly and wickedness in his sin and how the Lord took care of him in all those circumstances. And he's a great man, a great man. Jesus Christ is called the son of David. So he's somebody, if we look at Jesus Christ and get intimidated, thinking, oh, he was God in the flesh. How could it be like that? we got David we can fall back on because he was the man after God's own heart, and yet we can see all of his flaws, all of his faults, and know that God, if God could love David, he can love me too and pattern ourselves after him. I'm very thankful, as has been stated often today, last week, by many. I'm very thankful to be in a congregation where the men take their job seriously. You know, we don't have the responsibility of getting up every Sunday and providing something like this for our brethren. But we do have a responsibility for studying out what our pastor does provide for us and then living by it. And if you're doing that, you'll be able every once in a while, to get up and do something like this. I'm thankful to be in a congregation where we take our job seriously as, as members. Dear Lord, dismiss us now with thy blessing. Watch over and protect us, Father. Especially help our feeble memories not to forget 
the precious truths that we heard this day, Lord. May we be strengthened by them. May we be encouraged to step forth in faith, Lord, to do great things for you this year. Dismiss us now with thy blessing, Father. And if you tarry your coming, bring us again safely here again to hear more of your truth, to encourage one another in it. For we ask these things in the glorious, precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.